Earlier this year, Pastor Chris led us in a study of the structure and function of the early church as described for us in the New Testament. Our principal texts for that study rose from Paul's epistles to Timothy and Titus. At the same time as we were covering those passages on Sunday mornings, our life group undertook a focused study on the book of Titus. By the way, if you're not currently part of a life group, you are missing out. One of the great blessings of that format is that it provides time for a more in-depth discussion where we interact with one another and with the word to get closer to some of those foundational principles underlying the big ideas of a passage that we explore more generally on Sunday mornings. Now, what I hope to accomplish this morning is to provide some context and address some questions that have arisen as we've studied those passages together. Pop quiz, are you ready? You know, I got to be interactive. How many times does the word pastor or pastors appear in the New Testament? Shout out some answers. Okay, I see Vernon's giving me the old goose egg here. Anybody? Can anyone think of a passage where they might find that word? No? Huh? Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.11. So depending on the translation you prefer, the answer is either one or none at all. Ephesians 4.11 states, And it was he, Christ, who gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. That's it. One time. The Greek word that's translated here as pastor, poimen, appears 18 times in the Greek New Testament. 18 times. Every other single time, regardless of whether it's a literal usage or a metaphorical, it's always translated shepherd. In fact, a very small minority of contemporary Bible translators, including the ESV, which I'll be reading from this morning, the CJB, Complete Jewish Bible, the WEB, the Web, the World English Bible, they have broken with the convention of rendering it pastor and rendered poimen as shepherds in this passage as well, maintaining consistency with the rest of the New Testament and taking their pastor count down to Vernon's goose egg, down to zero. So is this idea of translating the Greek word for shepherd into the English word shepherd some newfangled notion that we shouldn't trust? Brace yourself. The very first complete translation of the Bible into English, Middle English to be precise, was completed by, does anyone know? Nope. Wycliffe, that's right, John Wycliffe. Tyndale gets his due in just a minute. By John Wycliffe in 1384, using the Latin Vulgate as his source text. This was prior to the invention of the printing press. So duplicating that work was an arduous process of hand copying. So those volumes were very costly and distribution was limited. 
142 years later, in 1526, William Tyndale completed the first English translation of the New Testament from the original Greek language, continuing to work on the Old Testament until his martyrdom 10 years later. Now, as you may recall, the Roman church at the time had enjoyed their monopoly on God's word. And they were no happier about an Englishman translating the Bible into a language that regular people spoke than they were about German monks questioning their doctrine and using the printing press to spread their ideas. Even with the shockingly low literacy rate at that time, it turns out that little bits of paper circulating among common people represented an existential threat to the Holy Roman See. Still, the horse was out of the barn and there was no turning back. The name of the game now was, if you can't beat them, join them. The next centuries would see a steady growth in the art and the discipline of Bible translation. Now, back to Ephesians 4. Are you ready? Let's have a look at the history of how this word, poimen, translated universally as shepherd everywhere else in the New Testament, is rendered in this one particular verse, Ephesians 4.11. All right? Starting with 1384, Wycliffe. Sheperdis. This is Middle English. Okay? And it was translated again from the Latin Vulgate. Sheep herdis. Tyndale, 1526. Shepherdis. From the Greek. The Coverdale Bible, 1535. Shepherdis. The Matthew Bible, 1537. Shepherdis. The Great Bible, 1539. Shepherdis. The Geneva Bible, 1520. Pastorals. The Bishop's Bible, 1568, Shepherdus, King James, 1611. Pastors, Douay Rheims, 1750, Pastors, King James, 1769, Pastors, Webster Bible, 1833, Pastors, English Revised, 1885, Pastors. Now, the first English Bible to deviate from shepherds was the Geneva Bible. One of the Bibles, by the way, to reach the shores of North America on the Mayflower. The late Middle English translation borrows an Anglo-Norman French word, pastor, which originates, French being a Latin language, Right? It originates from the Latin word pastor, which means shepherd. I kid you not. Go home this afternoon, whirl up Google Translate, set it up for Latin to English, and feed it pastor. Remember the Wycliffe Bible of 1384? It was translated from the Latin Vulgate. Now, in the Vulgate, every occurrence of the Latin word pastor that appears in the New Testament there traces back to that same Greek word, poimen. 
That's because poimen is the Greek word for shepherd. Greek poimen equals Latin pastor equals English shepherd. And so, when he was making his English translation of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate, every time the Latin word pastor appeared, he translated it shepherd. As for the Geneva Bible, there is some reason to believe that the translators were struggling with the notion of human men being described as shepherds to Christ's church. After all, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd. So this may explain their choice of this Anglo-Norman French word, pastors. Educated, literate English speakers at that time would likely have known that French word and understood it as an attempt to respect Christ's preeminence over the under-shepherds of the church. Still, what seems like a reasonable, even reverent attempt to highlight submission to Christ violates a fundamental principle of translation. Let scripture speak for itself. Translation is difficult work. Meanings don't always line up one-to-one. Sometimes choices have to be made, but when a one-to-one correlation is available, the KISS principle applies. You know the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. If you have spent your entire translation work translating this same word, shepherds, maybe translated shepherds here too. The Bishop's Bible returned to a straightforward translation. But for some reason, and I was not in a room at the time, it seems that the King James translators latched on to the Geneva innovation and straight up settled on appropriating the Latin word pastors. And once they did, everyone else pretty much followed suit. At least the Baptists are not to blame for this one. The Church of England is on the hook this time. All right, now look at that timeline again. Not until 279 years later would translators seeking a more literal rendering begin to return to the word shepherds. Darby and Young were the first to do so at the very tail end of the 19th century. Not that long ago. But the word pastors continues to dominate today. The problem isn't the English word itself, but the fact that a new word has been introduced unnecessarily, muddying the waters. Now look, if everyone spoke Latin, we would all recognize that pastor is a synonym for shepherd. Does everybody speak Latin here? The only thing it could be argued to add is the notion of a metaphorical use, that is, a pastor is a spiritual shepherd, but that doesn't justify the term. The metaphorical meaning is clear. Nobody in their right mind thinks that sheep herders are Christ's gift to the church. And every other time it appears metaphorically, it's translated shepherds. Okay, in the weeds here. Here's the point. 
What Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus is that one of Christ's special gifts to build and sustain the church is shepherds and teachers. And grammatically, those two are tied together to communicate two parts of a single category of person. The language here even suggests that a hyphen may be appropriate, as in shepherd teachers. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists are three distinct groups. The first two of which completed the work of setting the foundation of the church in the first centuries of the new epoch. Their ongoing blessing to the church today takes the form of the New Testament. The Lord continues to bless his church with evangelists skilled with the proclamation of the gospel to lost people far and wide. But shepherds and teachers appear to be one and the same, a powerful pairing of gifts to the church. Now, what is it that literal shepherds of livestock do? They protect, they watch over, and they lead a flock. What Paul is describing here is a combination of roles that defines the unique work of an elder. Simply speaking, elders are shepherds who teach. Now that I have disabused you of the notion that pastors are a thing, you're probably thinking to yourself, uh, Pastor Matthew, uh, haven't you preached yourself out of a job? Well, if by faithfully teaching God's people the word of God I've done that, then so be it. But uh, uh, Matthew, if there's no biblical office of pastor, what are we paying you for? I've long said, churches don't pay men to be pastors. They pay those men so that they do not have to do something else. So that their full focus and energy can be devoted to serving Christ's church, unhindered, unencumbered by the demands of some other honorable work. So perhaps I need to reconsider my wording on my old saying, or perhaps not. Maybe there's no harm in the word itself, but let me be clear. Nobody is your pastor who is not your shepherd, your overseer, your elder. They say sacred cows make the best hamburgers. And all of this by way of introduction. <laughs> Continuing on to or in Ephesians 4, let's consider the purpose for these Christ's gifts to his church. Now I'm going to ask you to stand if you are able, but not just to honor God's word. Stand with me if you would, if you're able. Normally, uh, that's something I grew up doing. When we we're going to read the passage, we would stand in honor of God's word. And that's fine and that's appropriate. But this morning, I want you to stand and I want you to take a minute and look around you. 
Look at the people gathered here today. Look at the saints gathered here today. Look at the body gathered here today, assembled here today. And look down at yourself. Look at your arms. Look at your legs. Most everybody here, some, some folks are missing a finger or two from some hard work they did many years ago. But most of us pretty much are whole. We've got all of our parts. And it's important to us that our parts are healthy, right? So, Ephesians 4.11. And he gave, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. For how long? Until we, the body, all the saints, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To what end? To mature manhood. To what extent? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. For what purpose? (laughs) So that we don't miss this so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, as united maturing saints, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, Give us what we are not. Make us. According to your will, by the power of your spirit, and for the glory of our risen Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Those of you who are note takers are probably staring at your bulletins now and thinking, they've given me the wrong week. It says Titus, but he's preaching from Ephesians. And this title doesn't have anything to do with anything. (laughs) Things really do fall to bits when Pastor Chris is out of town for a few days. (laughs) Bear with me. I promise you I will do my dead level best to connect all the dots. As I mentioned earlier, we've been engaged in a study of biblical church leadership, and now we've begun to explore as leaders and together as a body what this might look like as we seek to bring this area, as with all other areas, under the subjection of the Word of God by the Holy Spirit's direction. And Pastor Chris has led us through the qualifications and responsibilities for the offices of elder, episkopos, presbyteros, and deacon or deaconess, diakonos. My hope this morning is to place one of these main passages into context 
to help you to incorporate those terms into your thinking. In both 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul is concerned with protecting the church from false teaching and apostasy. But it is in his letter to Titus that the stakes, to me at least, feel the highest. Paul writes at a time when false teaching about circumcision and other remnants of the Old Covenant are threatening the purity of the gospel. And if that were not enough, the entire culture surrounding the churches about which Paul is giving instruction to Titus is utterly corrupt. And this is not anything new. Crete had a long history, a well-known reputation for being full of deceitful, lazy, faithless gluttons. I'm not being cruel. It was on the brochure. Paul quotes one of their own poets, believed by historians probably to be Epimenides, to bring their self-indictment to the reader's mind. It kind of reminds me of the way that Las Vegas operates. You know, what's it called? Sin City. Embracing their reputation with their well-known what happens here stays here slogan led to one of the more successful and better-known tourism campaigns of any city I can think of. Incidentally, it seems they have a new campaign. What happens here only happens here. Apparently, they announced this during the Grammys in 2020. I can't imagine how I missed it. (laughs) Um, At any rate, Crete, like Las Vegas had actually embraced their seedy reputation. So you can imagine that in a culture so utterly worthless as Crete, the challenge and urgency of living holy lives in contrast to those cultural norms must have been on the minds and the hearts of all the saints in those churches. And so the importance of identifying men strong in the faith with excellent reputations and unimpeachable character is understood, both as an example to the younger saints and because, especially because, these attributes gave the enemy no foothold to work with. Now, we've studied those requirements already, so I will not dig into them all this morning. But there is something about them that is striking. The list of qualifications for both elders and deacons is noteworthy in its normalness. Noted contemporary theologian D.A. Carson observes, the qualities mentioned are those which should be evident in a committed Christian. They essentially describe a mature follower of Christ. And another way to look at this is to take a step back, notice the things that are conspicuously absent. Advanced degrees, the charisma to draw a crowd, a perfect white smile, a minimum height requirement, a beautiful singing voice, the ability to cast a vision Whatever that means. Great hair. 
a long, thick beard, a flair for dramatic elocution, a beautiful wife, a large family, or even some sense of calling. Not a single one of these is even a consideration. And you can completely forget about pedigrees. Genealogies are right at the heart of the poisonous attacks of the false teachers Paul had in mind as he wrote this prescription to defend against them. Now, a great smile is fine. Children are blessing from the Lord. And there's certainly nothing wrong with advancing your studies. I've not stopped studying since the day I dropped out of college. (laughs) But the total lack of any of the attraction attributes with which the church in our time seems to be so enamored should give us pause. But it is what it is. Paul's instructions to Timothy and to Titus ensure that they will appoint steadfast, mature believers to these roles. Their lives must be such that no false charge will be entertained by anyone who knows them. Beyond that, there is freedom to serve in the fullness of who God made them to be. Just real quick, a reflection on those words above reproach. If your conception of that phrase would disqualify the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus Christ, you might just be missing something. Remember, our Savior hung on a cruel cross for your sins and for mine because men who knew him brought false charges anyway and others who did not know him believed the lies. In the film, The King's Man, Conrad, who desperately wants to fight in the Great War, contrary to his father's wishes and despite being too young to enlist, is given a white feather while he's in the village. Orlando, his father, explains that it is the symbol of a coward. And I should suffer such humiliation, Conrad protests. Orlando looks his son in the eyes and replies, Reputation is what people think of you. Character is what you are. The standard for an elder or a shepherd teacher, if you will, is not sinlessness or none could attain. It is not the utter absence of anyone out there with an axe to grind. It is faithful, exemplary, mature Christian character that hates sin, runs to repentance, loves the body of Christ, and will scale any boundary to be reconciled. It waits not to be confronted about some offense, but seeks out forgiveness to protect the unity of the body and kill any bitter root. All of these Attributes having been mastered in the home, it then seeks to instill them in the local body it serves. That is the character of an elder.
And that is the character of a deacon. It is what every true saint strives to emulate and own. So our text for this morning is Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 11. And this is where I hope to show you how all of these things come together. I'm not going to have you stand again, but I'm going to be reading fast through most of this because I want you to get a glimpse of the big picture. All right, ready? Titus 1, 5. And Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of goods, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, why? Verse 10. Four, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. See, I told you so. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. There it is. Paul is desperately concerned with both the general threat of the debauched culture and the specific perils of false teachers and their lies. So in order to protect the churches in Crete from these hazards, they need elders, overseers, shepherd teachers to equip them for the work of the ministry, to instruct them in sound doctrine and the whole counsel of the word of God so that they will be united in faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into mature manhood, lest, like children, they should be tossed around like a vessel on rough seas, driven hopelessly by every wind of false doctrine. God has given the church many, many great gifts. These include the Word of God, which is the living legacy of the first century apostles and prophets the gospel-spreading ministry of the evangelists, and the stabilizing, equipping, overseeing ministry of the shepherd teachers, the elders of the church. This is God's design for the church, for his church, for this church. Continuing, chapter 2. But as for you, 
teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, now pay attention to categories here. Ready? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Any of those sound familiar? Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Sound familiar? And to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, emphasis on working, as in not lazing at home, but industrious at the work of the family. Kind and submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. Sound familiar? Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Another category, bond servants. Now, these are New Testament slaves, but these are not slaves like American history slaves. We're talking about people who are not getting a salary for their work, but they work for one person. They're indentured. All right? Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Any of those sound familiar? What do you notice about those instructions? In my study, I charted them all out. And I found that they pretty much cover the gambit of the requirements for elders and deacons. So this raises to me three points. First, an elder's maturity or mastery of those attributes is what qualifies them to teach his flock how to live. An elder's maturity in faith qualifies him to teach his flock how to live. Do as I say, not as I do, does not apply. Walk with me together as we learn to follow Christ seems more in line. Second, the requirements for elders and deacons that are not echoed for all the saints seem to me to be specifically those that deal with the perils of being seen as a leader of men. Paul warns against arrogance, and then he sets a guardrail in place. Not a new believer. Literally, not a neophyte. He recognizes the importance of choosing men with a proven record of leadership, and he says, look how he manages his home. If he can't manage the church in his home, how can he lead the church of God? One more observation. Certainly, it doesn't make sense that each of these groups should only be expected to demonstrate mature Christian characters in perhaps two or three areas that are required of the shepherd teachers and the servants. But that's not Paul's point. 
Here's what I see here. The apostle Paul knows that there are certain areas that people in the various times and stations of life are likely to struggle. Does that make sense? Like, what was that one about gossips? I mean, you know, ladies be talking. Am I right? Right? Uh, I love that when it gets to younger men, he just says, yeah, he keeps it simple. Likewise, urge the younger men to be (laughs) self-controlled. That pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Young men, man, it sums it up. It sums up what they need at that time in their life. That's a good starting point. Look, just give them that. Give them one task. They can't handle thinking about it anymore. I couldn't. These are all common to every human living in a body descended from Adam. And no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that. And so he addresses them accordingly, by age, by sex, by station. What the context of Titus teaches us is that Christ has expectations for all who are his, that we all faithfully, intentionally be pursuing the kind of unity that we can only achieve when we are moving toward the same goal. The mission of growing this church into the mature, grace-filled refuge that God intends it to be is not, listen to me, it's not the responsibility of a handful of elected officers. And it certainly is not the wheelhouse of three guys drawing salaries to keep things running. It is everyone's responsibility. Starting in our own homes. To do whatever it takes to come out from the world and be different. To serve one another faithfully. To minister to the body in the ways that no one else can. The unique ways that God has gifted each of his saints. Do you realize that God put you here for a reason? When we say that this body is not complete without all parts, let me be clear. Nobody is benefiting from an arm or a foot that we have to pull out from between the couch cushions and dust off once a quarter. Do the work of the ministry. It honors God and it makes this body strong. And pray. Pray for one another. When the Holy Spirit brings someone to mind, pray for them. When that old rotten flesh brings someone to mind, pray for them twice as hard. Then seek them out and be reconciled one to another. That's how we stand together as a body and resist the attacks of the enemy. All of this to say, As you review these lists of requirements for elders and deacons, eschew the temptation to see them as the rubric of some class of super-Christian that doesn't even exist. See them for what they are, the marks of a common saint redeemed by the blood and obediently pursuing a life that puts the spotlight on God. The call to mature manhood, 
to mature womanhood in Christ is not just for somebody else. It is for you too.